Okay, so Father Philip gives me this task of uh, speaking. I, I don't even remember exactly what it, the, the name of it's supposed to be. So he just said, just talk about the Bible. And I said, he says, you don't have to talk about any particular uh, book or anything like that. Just talk about the Bible and where it comes from. So I've sort of made this a bit of my own. I'm, uh, it's, it's an incredibly broad uh, sort of area to address. Uh, I'm a bit intimidated in the sense that I I'm certainly don't fashion myself as certainly no expert or even overly educated on all of this. So what you're getting from me on all of this is, is what I've learned over a course of a, several decades and some specific time that I've sort of spent trying to prepare for this. So uh, it's really a primer. It's not, you know, I, I'm... I'm guilty of whenever I have to teach something, wanting to get every little nuance of everything, and that's you can't do that. It's just impossible. So, several years ago, a friend of mine told me. He says, "No," I said what you do is you just say some things, and and said leave some of it unsaid because you can't say it all. Just say what you can say, and then come back to it the next time and add to it. So, it's a primer. Uh, I, I hope I can give you some, maybe a little bit of new information. I don't know exactly what you might have been expecting. We might not even get to the Bible per se tonight. I hope we do, and I think we will. Um, uh, it may challenge you in some respects, particularly for those of us who've grown up in the South or, or in a, a, a much... Uh, a very intense sort of um, non-orthodox setting that, which put an extremely high um, value on the scriptures. Almost an inordinate amount, I would actually even say. But we'll get to that as we, as we talk about all of that. So, um, so I've, I've given, I've, there's a little handout. It's a one-page outline and it's very short and the outline's very short and and really I intended it to be that I'm not trying to overpower you with a lot of things to read or list to keep really what I want you to do is to sort of take just a few major things with you from all of this and um, and so really I think they're in some ways just things to help you remember I hope if I say anything worth remembering, that you'll remember it just from that. Um, you, if you've been around here any length of time, you know you've heard me say this a lot over the course of years. Uh, really, the purpose of our life is to come to know God. And so, John 17, 3, the Lord says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is eternal life. This is what life is, is to know God. Not to know about God, but to know God. To have this, inter this genuine, personal relationship with God. So before we start to talk about any kind of aspect of the faith... And, and may, this may seem like it's overkill for a lot of you, but I want to I want to set the stage because it's it's going to be important when we get further down the road when we're talking about how we use the scriptures, how we use them in the services, how we interpret them. It's going to be important to have as a backdrop the things that I'm going to say to begin with. 
And that is when we talk about what is the Christian life at all. What does it mean to, to live the Christian faith in any way? And we have to sort of, we, we need to address that. And so I want to say some things that it's not. Christian life is not a code of conduct. You know, we're not, certainly we value morals, but that's not, it's not a moral life. That's not what Christian life is. It's not a code of life. It's not even sort of that the, the scriptures or the traditions of the church give you some things about how to live your life. That's, it's not a code of life. It's not a set of laws. The laws are important. The Old Testament laws are important. They still are important. Those admonitions in the New Testament, but it, that's, that's Christ, the Christian faith, living a Christian life is not a set of laws. It's not a set of rules. I don't know how many times I get told by people who are sort of get frustrated whether it's by the fast or they get frustrated by something, some theological point or whatnot, and says, we just have too many rules. Well, that's not what the Christian life is. It's not a set of rules. What's the first thing I said? Knowing God. So they say, well, why do we have all these rules? Rules aren't bad. Rules are helpful. Okay? It's not a checklist. It's not something you, I mean, I love checklists. I'm an accountant. By trade, so I love to get my list down there and check them off. Or I, I've traded stories with people before where uh, I would even get to the end of the day and I hadn't put something on the list, but I did it. I'd write it down so I could check it off. <laughs> I bet some of you have done that, but you don't have to nod your head. Uh, it's not a set of teachings. It's not a set of, of Bible teachings or of traditional or teachings of the saints. It's not a, 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 a or of theology or soteriology, or mariology, or ecclesiology. It's not a set of teachings. Uh, it's not a scheme of how things exist. You know, I was fascinated, oh, decades ago, they developed this thing called TOE. You know what TOE is? The theory of everything. The theory of everything. And TOE is the, sort of, you have high-end mathematicians in physics that basically say, you know, everything can be eventually reduced to a mathematical formula. And it'll, and, well, actually, there's some, there's some basis for why they even say that. I, I'm not espousing that, but that's not what Christianity is. Christianity is Deacon Sidney knowing God and standing before him or, or prone before him saying, have mercy on me and knowing that God is right there with him and cares for him and listening to him and that he can talk with him. And one day he's going to be next to him. It's, that's, it's this genuine relationship with God. It's living that life that enables us to know God. That's what the Christian faith and the Christian life is. To experience God daily, both alone and with other people, even other people who don't even know God. That's part of what the Christian life is, is to be out there and live amongst those people. Because we're called to be light. This is the Christian life. It's the faith. It's important to keep in mind as we study anything about the faith that this is what we're about, is to know God. The goal of this study and our actions is to enter into that knowing. So that's, that's why we're here, to talk about this one little side. It's not a little. One major piece of our life is the scriptures and how, the, how they enter into that. But even thinking about the scriptures, it's not just thinking about them or thinking about Christian things. It's not just doing good things. 
It's not just praying prayers. Christian life is not just praying prayers or coming to church, keeping the fast, reading the Bible, studying the fathers. All of these things are important. But in the end, patristic Christianity is experiencing God. Is having a genuine experience of God. Not, and not one that you've cooked up. I have a really good friend who was, I'm not trying to throw rocks at anything. It's just, this is what he told me. He was Pentecostal for years. And he spoke in tongues for years. And after he left all of that, I asked him about it. He said, oh, I just taught myself to do that. That wasn't anything real. But it was what he was expected to do. But it, he didn't, it, I mean, it made him feel good when he did it. And he would tell you that. But it wasn't true. So Christianity is, is living a true life of knowing God, not one that we sort of manufacture or, 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 or sort of think up or emulate that somebody else has done. It's our knowing God. You know your wife or your child or your mother or your father or your brother or your friend. You know them to some extent. You want to know God as well or better as you know all of them. And that, that takes a lot of work. This reality, this reality that I'm talking about, what the Christian faith is, has to inform our study of anything. And so especially with the scriptures, I think, in a lot of ways. My task is to talk about the scriptures, not to teach about specific books, as I said, but to help all of us, including myself, uh, understand what the scriptures are, where they come from, why they're considered holy, how they're to be understood, when and where they're to be used. We can't begin to do that, however, without addressing another topic. And that's what we call holy tradition. So, for, again, for some of you this may be old ground, but it, maybe it'll sort of touch on something that you've been uncomfortable with, or maybe you'll be more uncomfortable with it when I finish. That could be. Holy tradition is, in effect, well, one definition that's given for it is the deposit of faith given by our Lord Jesus Christ to the apostles and faithfully passed on in the church from one generation to the next. Uh, there's another nice, uh, this is uh, Yaroslav Pelikan. Yaroslav Pelikan's a very interesting fellow. I don't know, if, are any of you familiar with who he is? Now, Pelikan was a Lutheran pastor he was a, 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 and he was also a professor at Yale for years. Brilliant man, wrote lots and lots of things. And at the end of his life, he converted to orthodoxy. And he lived about five more years. And people were always wanting, always wanting to have him to sort of talk about his experience. And for the most part, I was told this, for the most part, he, he basically said, no, I need to be instructed. I don't need to be the instructor in this faith, which is a remarkable thing for somebody of his stature to say. But he did. Anyway, he wrote this about tradition. Tradition is the living faith of, excuse me, is the living faith of the dead. He added to that. I excised it from what I wrote here. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. So, if you're, if you're practicing traditionalism, in other words, you're sort of making that your God, it's dead. But if you're living tradition, that's completely alive. And it's connected to those who pass on but are with God. He added to that, tradition lives in conversation with the past while remembering where we are and when we are and that it is we who have to decide, meaning what do we do with this? That was Pelican, about tradition. Holy tradition. The fact that we speak of it as um, the tr deposit given 
by our Lord to his apostles sort of makes it sound like, okay, well, tradition didn't begin until Christ assembled the 12 and he passes this on in those three years and then he, so tradition begins in. That's not true. Tradition begins because God always is, because God is forever. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit always are. So from the very beginning, they were already there, as they always are. And so the fullest understanding of the church is that the church begins at Pentecost. It doesn't begin at Pentecost. It doesn't even begin with the picking of the twelve. The church begins when God creates the first angels and men. Because the church is, is there are those who are connected and united to the Lord, whether it's pre-resurrection or post-resurrection. So this knowing God and the church both begin when man and angels are when men and angels are created, and it continues on. And so this living tradition spans all of that time. Uh, Vladimir Lasky, who's another uh, 20th century theologian, very uh, important theologian for Orthodox and says, uh, tradition is the life of the Holy Spirit in the church. It is the ongoing experience of the dynamic and unchanging God. And I added to that, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, Tradition guards and preserves all of God's revelations to the angels and to men. The truly unknowable one agreed to be knowable. The one who couldn't be known agrees to be knowable. And, And he reveals himself to men. He's done this from the beginning of the creation. So he speaks with the angels before the men are created. He speaks with men as soon as they're created. He speaks with Adam. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. Not in length, but some. We hold all of these revelations dear to our hearts, and and the best way we guard those is in our tradition, our practice, our living those revelations out and not losing them, holding on to them. And so we, I'll talk in a little bit more about maybe how we do that, just a little bit. Um, they enable us to go forward personally in each of our own experiences of our Maker. So tradition is, is our living the faith and, and falling in with all of those others who have lived the faith and continue to, to know God and to, and to be with God. Just a few more things from the Scriptures themselves about tradition. This is from John, John 20. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. I just, this one I picked up because everything about our Lord gets passed on in lots of different ways. Some of it gets passed on in pictures. Some of it gets passed on in stories. Some of it gets passed on in other ways. Some of it in writing, but not everything was written down. And, And John even says that to us. Also in John, in the next chapter, John 21, Jesus did many other things as well. And you remember this one because you've heard it several times, particularly during uh, Lent and Holy Week. If every one of them were to be written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. So all of the things about the, the life of Christ, many of it gets communi- much of it gets communicated to us through the life of the community of people who knew him. And, cont- and hold on to those revelations. 
from First Corinth, the church, uh, Paul's first letter to the church at Corinth. Now I commend to you that you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. And he's speaking about the teaching that he left them, the things that he communicated them to do. He gives them specific instructions. But this is, they predates his letter. It's his conversation with them. Yeah. Yeah, 1 Corinthians 11, 2. Then uh, he writes to the church at Thessalonica, 2 Thessalonians 2.15. You're familiar with this one. So then, brothers, stand firm, cling to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by word of mouth or by our letter. So he specifically says the, the traditions come in two ways. They come by what we write and they come by what we say. All of this is important, and, and we're going to see it and understanding how to embrace the scriptures, Okay. Also, another, that was uh, 2 Thessalonians 3, 6 is another one. Now we commend you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. Okay? Uh, another one from the church letter uh, to church at Corinth. For I received of the Lord that which I delivered to you. So here, you actually see this several times Paul speaks about, I'm just giving to you what was given to me. I'm a recipient, and now I'm passing this on. I wish Billy Scranton had been to state here. Billy for a while taught a catechism class for us, and he did the best job of explaining tradition. And I can't do it as well as he, but I'm going to just do it very quickly. But he said, the Greek word for tradition is, I think, parodosis. It means to, to faithfully hand on, to hand over. And so the picture of tradition for us is from one generation to the next, hands this thing on. He, and so he said, well, let me give you an example. He says, you're, you're in your family, and your family has this heirloom pitcher. And he says, it's a china uh, pitcher. It's been in the family for decades, maybe even longer than that. It's beautiful. It was, it's 150 years old. And you become the recipient of it. And, and it's, uh, it's, it's, its lines are perfect. The painting, the glazing's all perfect. And he says, and you look at it and you think, well, this only has one handle. I think we need two handles on this picture. And so you decide to add a handle to the picture. What does that do? It's not the same picture anymore. Or you decide, well, I don't think we need handles anymore. We don't need those. You, you break the handle off. Same thing. And he says, that's not what you would do. You would love, you would not love, but you would care for this picture that you received and faithfully hand it on to your next generation. He says, that's what we do in tradition in the church. We, we hold it tightly, we guard it, we protect it, and we give it to the next generation so that they can give it on too, without adding to or without taking away from now, it doesn't mean that we don't polish it. it. Doesn't mean that we don't, you know, a picture. And this is where the analogy breaks down a little bit. You know, certainly in the life of the church, there are things where things have been spoken and taught, and now there are more definition—not definition, more description—added to lots of things. So we come along in the fourth century. You know about what happens when we're struggling with all the issues about Arianism, and 
So the church actually uses a word in its, in its creed, its symbol of faith, it's, it's not in the scriptures. And that was one of the biggest issues about the creed was that we are now using this word that we don't even have in our scriptures. How can we do that? Because we need some more definition, more description so we can understand the revelation that's been left for us. So not adding to, but adding clarity and description as best we can. So we do not worship traditions. Who do we worship? God. We fall down and adore God because we want to do what? Know God. What do the traditions do? They help us know how to approach God, to know God better, to, to, to uh, um, offer ourselves to God through the traditions themselves. They're our protection. They're our God. We worship and adore and prostrate before the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit alone. The traditions are just helps for us. Nevertheless, we treasure and we honor them. They're an integral component, excuse me, part of that tradition, an integral, an inseparable part of all that is the Bible. And that's where we come to the topic that we're going to talk about tonight, to begin to talk about tonight. The inspired writings given to us within the context and the community of the faith of people who have lived and loved God together both personally and communally. The church whose existence spans millennia from the beginning of the angels and men to now. So if you're following along on this little cryptic, we're now down to scripture is tradition. Where do the scriptures, the Bible, fit into this holy tradition? Some people, some uh, would posit that the Bible and tradition are sort of in opposition to each other. Most of us have grown, and well, many of us, many of us have grown up in sort of a milieu that would sort of, sort of downplay the importance of tradition. Scripture versus uh, the Bible. And, and in those cases, sometimes, or most of the times, the Bible sort of takes uh, a, a top place in, in tradition, if it's tolerated at all, is, is a very secondary place. Others would speak of tradition and the scripture. We sort of have those two things side by side. I would, I would say to you, I think there's a, the best way to understand the scriptures is that they are tradition. The scriptures are tradition. They're just not all of the tradition. Tradition occupy, it finds itself in many, many places. The locus of tradition is spread out over not just these writings, but over a larger area. And we'll talk about just the pieces of that in just a second. But I would say not scripture or tradition. I would even say not scripture and tradition, a phrase that somebody else coined that I think makes some sense is helpful, scripture in tradition. That's how we would see Scripture in tradition. Scripture explains, supports, protects other aspects of tradition as well. Just as other aspects guard the Bible. There are things about other traditions that guard the Bible. Or excuse me, other aspects of tradition that guard the Bible. It's important that we not over-focus on any one aspect of all of that. If we become people who are Bible only to the exclusion of everything else, we'll become very uh, sick. And we know lots of 
unfortunate other traditions that have some sickness because maybe they are over-focused on the Bible. But if you don't have the Bible and you focus only on worship, only without the Bible or without some of these other aspects I'll mention to you in just a second, you may miss the, the touchstone that's always guarding the truth. The Bible, the Scriptures, the Holy Scriptures have been handed to us. The, this written revelation or tradition of the revelations of God to us. So we see all of these things as part of the life in, in Christ, life of the church, that we live together in trying to know God. Now I'm going to give you a really quick, brief sort of think, way to think about tradition um, or aspects of it. We're not going to spend a lot of time with it, but I do, we do, when I was doing catechism class, I would talk about all this, but I'm just going to do it real quick for you. But one aspect of tradition, obviously, is the Bible. It's the, the primary written tradition of the revelation of God. Another would be actually the liturgies of the church. How we pray, how we pray together and have prayed for centuries. What you pray today in the divine liturgy, we've been praying essentially for 1700 years. 1650, without a lot of difference. And so, in fact, the liturgy ends up explaining a lot of the Bible. And the Bible explains a lot of the liturgy. And they both guard each other, but they're not the only thing. We also have creeds. Actually, let's don't put creeds, let's change that. We have councils. Not every council is good. We have, we've had some really bad councils. We have a council called the Robber Council. You know, well, he stole things. You know, I mean, I, we have lots of bad councils. We have lots of really good councils, but there are only seven of them for us that ascend to the level where they are deemed to be what we call ecumenical, which means they, they are applicable to the cosmos. That's what that means. The whole of the world is taught by these councils and the outcome of it. Well, and so out of councils come a couple of things. We have creeds that come out of the councils, and we have canons or sort of rules. I'm not going to spend lots of time on that, but let's just leave it at that for the moment. The councils of the church help us know what's true. And there's, it's a, they, preserve, they preserve this revelation. The best example is the first council. It's not the only example, but it's the a, it's a best one. It's easy to understand, and that is that, is Jesus God, yes or no? Okay. Is he equal to the Father? Well, the, the guardianship for that in, in loud, most loudly spoken comes from the first council. And it, what it's doing, it's, it's helping us understand how the Bible is speaking. But you know what? The Bible informed the council as to what Christ had taught. So these things interact and synergetically, excuse me, in synergism work together. We'll add two more real quickly. Uh, the lives and writings of the fathers... And you know when we say fathers, we mean fathers and mothers that write, right? Okay. Lives and writings. How they lived. How did St. Seraphim live? We, we don't all want to live like St. Seraphim did, a thousand days on one rock. But he did that for you. John the Baptist spent 
years in the wilderness because he wanted to know God, and that serves you. The lives and writings, and, and, and so we have beautiful, I mean, we've been talking recently about uh, John of Damascus and all of the things that he wrote, the, the hymns that he wrote. So much of what we sing comes from the hand of John of Damascus in his hymnography, which is explaining the Bible and liturgies and, and expressing the creed which the Holy Fathers have guarded, which they got from the Bible, and we pray in the liturgy. All of this interacts. The last thing, I, for lack of a better term, I just going to call it art, but we might say the physicalness of the church, whether it's the architecture of the church, it's the vestments, whether it's the iconography, whether it's the sounds of the music, or, or, or whether it's uh, uh, the incense, whatever it may be. All of that is guarding guarding this tradition, this life in God. Okay? I listed this one first, that that means it's the most important. Some people would say it's the most important. Other people would say they all fit together. They have to be there together. Otherwise, they get askew. If all you ever do is interested in the art of the church and you're not interested in how the councils had to, had to interact with one another as individuals and make things uh, wrestle through problems, you're going to have a problem. I'm running out of time, and I'm not getting very far. Okay. Questions on this so far? Where do the sacraments fit now? Well, part of the yeah, in the liturgy. Exactly. Exactly. But the sacraments, they're spoken of in here. Unless you eat, of, unless you eat this bread and drink this blood, you have no part in me. You know, and John 6 is, is sacramental. That's what John 6 is all about, which is another thing. You know, in, my, in a former tradition I was in, nobody would ever thought about John 6 being sacramental. <laughs> but how do, we know, how do we know it's sacramental? Well, because we have lives and writings of the fathers. We also have the liturgy. All of that sort of is helping retain for us what the Bible is really saying. Okay. All of these are products of the life of the Holy Spirit in the church, and church in the broadest sense since creation, guarding God's revelation to man himself and the lessons taught and learned by man in his life in God in a fallen world. Okay, so with all of that as a backdrop, you're probably wondering, why did you go through all of that? Because later on we're going to say, well, how do I, how do I use these, these words in the scripture? <laughs> how do I? We use them in the life of the church. You use them in this knowing God, and, and we're going to get to that. Okay. And then the, my next little topic here says, words precede writing. So we're going to talk about writing, but before we have writing, what do we have? We have conversation. And so from the very beginning, um, who speaks first in creation? God speaks first. He speaks, and it is. Let there be light. Let there be light. God speaks. And what happens? There are, in effect, somebody listening, because <laughs> now there's light. Obviously, he calls those things, and he creates all of those things. Um, but if we look at the parallel New Testament passage about creation, which is John, the beginning of John, the first verses, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was 
with God and the Word was God. So it's not insignificant that Christ is called the Word of God. Very important for us. And it ties right into this. But that's not all that it is. He's the person who speaks, he gives, he gives voice to the words of God incarnately. God's first writing, God's first writing was when? You want to guess? That's right. About 80 chapters into the, into the Bible. We don't have any writings till then. And in fact, it's very interesting. Between Adam to Noah, there are about, at least from the scriptures, 10 generations. From Noah to Abraham, there's about another 10 generations. From Abraham to Levi, there's another three. From Levi to Moses, there's another three. So at a minimum, you have six, 16 generations before the first thing's ever written. And it's God who writes it. But that doesn't mean there wasn't communication. That doesn't mean God was speaking. He's speaking to Noah, he's speaking to Adam, he's speaking to Abraham. And what do they do? They respond. They live in this relationship with God. So, then the first things we have, at least traditionally that are written in the Old Testament, are those first five books of the Bible we call, we call the Pentateuch in Greek. In, in Hebrew, it's the Torah. So those first five... There's a lot there, isn't there? Um, so, and traditionally, we say that Moses wrote all of that. There are certainly those who challenge it, but I'm not here to challenge it. I'm happy that Moses wrote it. That's great. And, and some people would say, <clears throat> um, how does he or anybody else remember all of these things that, you know, from, uh, this sort of applies going further. Just a little bit of a side note here. Um, and that is, <clears throat> how can there be a memory of all of these important things that were said? And we don't have very good memories anymore to remember spoken things or to retell stories. We retell some jokes that we remember. You know, I have one really good joke that I can tell, and I, but I can't remember many others than that one. Uh, <clears throat> But there's very good evidence that uh, a great deal of all of Homer's writings were actually written down long after they were ever spoken. Excuse me, yeah, ever, ever, they were put to paper long after they were spoken and, and repeated over and over and over and over and over and over. And somebody challenged that one time. I mean, it's a, sort of a recent kind of thing, and they've gone back and done a lot of analysis. And, and so there was some challenge to all of that work. And so how could that possibly be? And then in Yugoslavia here in the last 50 years, they found this whole community of people who's been doing the same thing for hundreds of years, just repeating these stories over and over and over and over, retelling and teaching. So the idea about somebody being able to bring forward remembrances orally and rather accurately is not, is not so foreign at all. But that's just a side thing for you. Words, the spoken words, this relationship precedes the writing. That's not to denigrate the writing, it's just to be real about it, to be honest about it. So why do we ever start to write anything at all? And so <clears throat> the, actually the opening book of, excuse me, the opening chapters of 
Luke's gospel are, are a nice sort of statement about why we write. I'm just going to read that to you. It's Luke 1, 1 through 4. So Luke says, Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus. Probably a real person, but also a play on words, one who loves God. That you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. So Luke wants to set down a record, not just to have it be an oral story told. He wants to set the record in, and so that it might be spread and understood and, and guarded even more. And so I think we would say that for any who wrote, whether it was Moses or, or any of the Old Testament writers, um, so, with that sort of as an opening, we now come to the Bible. Part of this tradition, part of this reality of, of this living faith that we have, and that's at 744 is the stopping place. <laughs> <laughs> so, next time we'll pick back up there, we'll talk about, so just to preview that real quickly, I got one minute left, preview. So we're going to talk about the Old Testament canon there and and most of you are aware that for, uh, as Orthodox, uh, the Old Testament for us is what we know as the Septuagint. Uh, and we'll talk about a lot about how, how it comes to be. But we're also going to talk about the Hebrew canon. We'll talk about the differences. And we're going to talk about other canons, Old Testament canons. We won't talk a lot, but some. We'll then do a comparison of the canons. We'll talk about the books in the Septuagint. And then, as you can see, future topics, we'll do a similar sort of thing for the New Testament. Then we're going to talk about how we read the scriptures. We're going to talk about how we interpret them. And, and if we get to it, we may not get to this. This may be for another time. How we use the scriptures in the services of the church. 